Hello everyone, it is September 9th, Monday, 2019. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Letters from Harriet. This is Angela. Hopefully you had a good weekend, and I'm just going to get right into the topic today. As I mentioned on the last podcast, on this one, I want to just briefly go over three examples where polygamy has become quite a problem that are not Utah. Um, The reason for this is we can learn from other places. Um, Also, just a reminder, these podcast episodes, are going to try to keep them to about 25 minutes and no longer than that. Um, So on this one in particular, uh, this is comprising research over a very long time. And this is... It's, it's important stuff. So we'll just get right into it. I'm going to discuss three different countries. One, Canada. Two, France. Three, Israel. And uh, in Canada, this is the Canada polygamy reference case. Most of you may not be familiar with it. I wasn't before I got into this subject. So um, this case happened in 2011. It is now considered the most comprehensive study in the world to date on polygamy. Um, The process stretched over two years. Um, That's the research and gathering uh, expert witnesses, people who have lived polygamy, people who have left polygamy, people in polygamy. Um, When it finally got to the courts, it was uh, four months of testimony, uh, over 100 witnesses, and um yeah. So one thing that I that that I think is interesting about the Canada case um is that Canada is one of the most liberal countries in the world. Uh we've known that for a long time. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's important to note uh especially with this topic. Canada was the fourth country to legalize same-sex marriage in the early 90s. And some forms of bestiality were actually still legal until this year, 2019. So as far as um, stuff in those categories, really pretty liberal. And so what happened in 2011? In 2011, it uh, was brought before their Supreme Court. Um, There is a group of Mormon fundamentalists that live in Canada. Um, They actually moved there in 1890. And um, and it was made illegal in 1890 as well, up in Canada, but regardless, um, a group moved up there. And so in 2011, it came before the Supreme Court. And the question that they asked, I think, is really significant. And we need to remember this. I'm going to go back to this over and over and over again on what are the important questions to be asking when we're talking about something like this. Because if we, like I said in the last episode, if we if we were to say... Can consenting adults, does the government have a right to interfere with consenting adults having a relationship or a sexual relationship? Um, It really limits your answer when you ask that question. And so this question that they asked before their court was really important. And that question was, um, is polygamy consistent with the um, Canada's freedom of charter or charter on, charter on freedom. So basically like their constitution is polygamy consistent with that. Um, 
Now, that's an important question. And uh, another thing that's interesting about the Canada case, because they are so liberal, when they spent the time researching it, they really researched it from a broad range of disciplines, including anthropology, psychology, sociology, law, economics, family, uh, and theology. Um, so after, after all that time, after four months of testimony and 100 witnesses, 90 reports, it actually took Chief Justice Bauman um, another year after that to write his decision. And that decision that he wrote was 300 pages long. Uh, it might maybe a little more than 300 pages, and I've read it. Um, and it's significant because they decided to keep it illegal. Um, and not just illegal, but criminal. So let's talk a little bit more about what why they did that. Um, now, one thing to realize is the attorneys that were on the case also thought that they would legalize it. They didn't realize that their opinions would change. Um, and really, for, for, um, for Craig Jones, who was lead counsel, his shift happened it happened over time but there was one part of polygamy that really got him thinking and it was a phrase in a book and here's the phrase um, I'm just going to quote it quote it from from his book it was evidence of the harms of polygamy both to its participants and to society at large that challenged his instincts and caused him to conclude but it wasn't enough to target the visible abuses stemming from polygamy while ignoring the practice itself. His shift in thinking happened over time, but there's one moment of realization that was critical to this shift. It occurred when he came across the phrase, the cruel arithmetic of polygamy. Now, he was reading a book on, on polygamy, and so this phrase really stood out to him, and here's what it means. Uh, and all, I'm fascinated. I didn't realize this either, but I'm also fascinated the more people I talk to that don't realize that this really is a, a math problem. And the math problem is this. Um, men and women are born in equal numbers. It's a one-to-one -one ratio, really across the entire world, unless you live in China where they instituted the one-child policy and primarily wanted boys. So you have a, a big offset there. And the only other place that you would have an offset of that one-to-one -one ratio is if you're in a country that's ravaged by war. Now, what does, this, what does this have to do with polygamy? Well, when you have a one-to-one -one ratio of men and women or boys and girls, and your society is set up in that uh, a, a man needs more than one, you have a problem because for every wife you take over your one, you're now distorting the numbers for other men in your community. So 
that might not sound like it would be a very big deal, but it is a very big deal because the other thing that you end up doing is you end up driving down the age of marriage because the one-to-one -one ratio is within your age group. So um, when people, I don't know, from, from all of my research, clear until very recent research, um, I, I don't see a lot of people understanding how this relates to harm. So one problem that is known in several of the groups in Utah, if not all of them, is um, underage marriages. And the reason you're going to have those underage marriages is because you're driving down the age of marriage, right? So with that one-to-one -one ratio, that's in your age group. So if one man has 10 wives, not only did he take nine away from other men in his age group, but the more this happens, it doesn't take very long before now you're, you have to marry girls who are younger and younger. And the other part of that problem, and then I want to give an example, is with that one-to-one -one ratio, you've got to get rid of 20 to 40% of your young men and preferably before they're very interested in girls. Um, otherwise, you're gonna, you have a big problem because you have to get rid of them. Uh, now, you're either gonna get rid of them or they're going to leave. Now, I'm gonna give you an example. I was talking with someone I'm not going to say his name because I, I didn't know I was going to give this example, but I, I talked with someone who left one of the groups here in Utah, and we were talking about this phenomenon, about the one-to-one -one ratio, and he said, um, he goes, yeah, he goes, I lived it. He goes, you're, you're totally right on that. Um, in his, uh, I guess you would call it a young adult group, he said the age group was like 18 to 30 or 18 to 18 to 35. I can't remember which one. And in for the boys, um, I believe he said there were, it was either 90 or 95 in his age group. And then he posed the question to me. He said, well, how many girls do you think there were in, in that same age group of 18 to 30, 35? And I waited for the answer. And the answer was, five and he even went uh, gave a little more detail and said yeah um, very often the older men who were in the community who were married and had more than one wife already would tease the the young men in that age group and and make jokes about how their wives were probably in diapers um you know i've heard I've heard a lot of disturbing things in my life and a lot of disturbing things having to do with this issue. But that's, um, I can't imagine um, having to hear that and, and, and what maybe went through their minds. Um, how, for one, humiliating, right? And also just a very stark reality of that cruel arithmetic. So um, we have to realize uh, that no matter what you do, when you live in a society, a normal society, you're going to have a one-to-one -one ratio of boys and girls. And because of that, because the culture or the community 
says that you need more than one wife. Now, some of the communities say you need three. Some of them say you need, you know, more than three. You, even if everyone's a consenting adult, at some point, you are going to have child brides and you are going to be kicking out your, your young men, a portion of them at least. Or And if you don't kick them out, they're going to leave. Um, all right, so that's all I'm going to say uh, for Canada. And um, next we're going to go on to, well, actually, let me read just just a couple of quotes directly from that decision. So this is from the judge. Uh, Polygamy's harm to society includes the critical fact that a great many of its individual harms are not specific to any particular religious, cultural, or regional context. They can be generalized and expected to occur, occur wherever polygamy exists. And another one, um, it's a nice idea that the harms that go hand in hand with the practice of polygamy could be addressed if only the practice would be brought into the sunlight through decriminalization, but there is no reason to believe that this would happen. All right, so now we're going to go to polygamy in France, and the title of this is Decriminalization is Not Something That Can Be Approached as a Harmless Social Experiment. Uh, I hear over and over and over again, that, uh, especially from other podcasters that are talking about polygamy, that we should just bring it out into the light, and then, then you wouldn't have these crimes, and you wouldn't have you know all this stuff. You know, Bring it into the light. Just decriminalize it. And... So we're going to use France as an example on this. So what happened in France? France was really hurt by World War I and World War II. And after World War II, they were in great need of immigrant workers. And so because of that, they, they relaxed their immigration policies to allow polygamists and it really was just motivated for the demand of immigrant labor. Now, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but they did. And what ended up happening was in, within 40 years, they went from no one living in polygamy to more than 200,000. And they were largely concentrated in the poor suburbs of Paris. And what happened is what we see happening in in. Another example we're going to give, you know, Utah, we're not even fully aware of the criminal aspect. We are somewhat, and the people that are involved are, but the general public is definitely not aware of what it really truly looks like. And what happened in France was all of those abuses that stem out of that power structure started to, they started to see, I mean, just a massive increase on welfare, uh, people not being educated, men not taking care of their children, on and on and on. And so it became so bad, the condition of those people, that they they passed legislation in 1993. And not only did it reverse it, uh, it reversed the immigration policy back to allowing no polygamy, but it also required polygamous families to decohabit. Um, I think this example is instructive for a couple of reasons. Number one, it shows how quickly it grew within 40 years just by relaxing their policy. And 
And they actually are saying even now that it was more detrimental to make it legal and then make it illegal within 40 years because it's just been so devastating for for the families there. Uh, now you do have to another thing about that is that um, those families primarily came from um, let's see I'm going to read a quote actually this is uh, this came to my knowledge actually from the Canada case so Canada this is in the Canada decision this is from Dr. Henrik the other thing here I'm just checking my notes is that even if we put aside whether Canadians who have acquired sort of the general cultural values that maybe they are immune they may feel they're immune, but there's still going to be migration issues in the sense that I would expect if polygamy did become legal in Canada, that you would see different numbers for this. Um, between 50 and 100,000 polygamous living families in the United States, certainly many of them might be inclined to move north because they could live without the threat of the law in the U.S. So that would be one thing. There would also be, I would think that Canada would be a destination for polygamous families from Africa and the Middle East. Canada would be the Western destination for any immigrants who are polygamous because no other Western democracy has legalized it. And then there is also underground polygamy both in the U.S. and France. Presumably they would want to move here as well. So, so it becomes an issue when you're talking about making it less of a crime. Um, I think People here in Utah may think, oh, well, let's just decriminalize and, you know, we'll just let these religious communities keep to themselves. But what you don't realize is what happened in France could very well and most likely would happen if you relaxed the law here. And then you might ask yourself, why? Why would people want to come here? Well, just take a look at the way society functions in the Middle East and then take a look at the way it functions here and especially economically. Um, it is a much better um, economic way to live. Um, we live in a, in a pretty good country as far as that goes. All right, so our last example that I'm going to use during this podcast is the example of Israel. And this was news to me. So... Polygamy in Israel. In January 2017, the government passed an $825 million plan to improve the socioeconomic status of the Bedonian sector, Israel's most disenfranchised population. Part of that plan was the creation of a government committee to eradicate polygamy and help the women and children who are hurt by it. Um, the Justice Ministry director spent a year meeting with the women there and in July of 2017, it's either July 2017 or it may have been 2018, she produced a 315-page report detailing 84 different recommendations spanning law enforcement, education, health, and welfare. And here's a quote from, from the Justice Ministry Director. Polygamy impacts every aspect of their lives adding that women in polygamous marriages suffer high rates of sexual assault, domestic violence, and depression. The men typically live with their newest wife, leaving their previous wife to fend for herself and their children. Um, so, and then, you know, Israel had a difficult time with it as well, and I, I think their difficulties are similar to Utah's in that they really didn't want to interfere with religious tradition, and that's what 
that's what that sector is is dealing with. They're they're a portion of Israel that practices Islam, and so they didn't really want to mess with that. And that part's understandable, but the level of abuse and the level of harms became so bad. I mean, that's a pretty big budget, $825 million. Um, so uh, that report is also available to read online as well. And then the last bit that that I would like to talk about is is data that we do have from here. But I won't be able to expound too much on this podcast, but I will on another one. And that data is showing the level of abuse. This data comes from Holding Out Help, an organization here in Utah that's been open for about 12 years, I believe. They have helped people transition from from polygamy into normal society. And this is... uh, these statistics come from approximately 1,700 people. So the education rate, uh, high school education, if we look at the United States, is about 92%. And within these groups, it's about 43%. But the one that is most alarming to me is the sexual assault number. And the sexual assault number... Uh, nationwide in the United States is about 12.4%. And within these societies, now granted this is people that are leaving or people that have left, but if you try to say that, oh, you're only asking the people who are leaving and that's why the data is so high, you would really have to flip that question back onto yourself because we are not saying that that is why they are leaving. We are just saying that this is coming from people who have left. And the statistic is that we have 75% reporting sexual assault. And really that number is larger. They just wanted to err on the side of caution. And so to help quantify the 75% number, we have to realize that South Africa is the, has the highest rate of sexual assault in the entire world. And they are reporting at 30%. So we have a a much bigger problem than I think most are willing to look at. Now, there's a lot of different ways you could view that information. But if you just take it at face value and you just look at it at face value and not try to, you know, try to substantiate or justify that number, just look at the number and say what is going on. Um, If you know anything about reporting in particular, um, reporting is one of the most difficult aspects of gathering data on sexual assault and sexual abuse. And so the fact that they are able to report this is even more astounding. So those are my three examples for why Utah should not make polygamy uh, a misdemeanor. Whoever came up with that idea um, I don't think were, were I, I don't think they were thinking about the best interest of of not only people within polygamy but also people on the outside. And I'm going to say on the outside because that's what we're viewed as. And I just want to give one comparison from Harriet Beecher Stowe on this because this is titled "Letters from Harriet," and I'm sure you're wondering, man, is she going to talk about her this episode? You know. Harriet Beecher Stowe really didn't want to get involved in the issue of slavery. 
And honestly, it probably didn't impact her life very much as a white woman who lived in the North. But what happened with her is that they had passed the anti-slavery, the, the anti, um, shoot, now my brain is gone. The anti, the Anti-Fugitive Slave Act, that's what it's called. And so what that said was, if you live in a free state and a slave crosses over into freedom, and if you see them and you don't send them back, well, now you're going to be in trouble. And remember last episode, um, the consequence for things like this, it's not like it was just a slap on the hand. They were very large fines and oftentimes death. Now, I don't know what the exact punishment for it was. I think the point is that once they passed the Anti-Fugitive Slave Act, it became very personal for Harriet because now at that point, the law is interfering with her freedoms. And so for those that are listening, I would ask yourself, you know, at what point do you feel like you should get involved in helping these people? Are we going to wait until it affects your freedom? Because the reality is, in my opinion, and, may, and maybe the state of Utah doesn't understand the reality of what's going on in these groups. And, and maybe if we just assume safely, you know, like, like Israel, like they just, they just didn't want to mess with it. It was a religious custom and they didn't understand it, but they let it go. That might be the case here. But the reality with that is even that we have thousands and thousands of people living this way who are not being protected. Their individual rights and their individual freedoms are not being protected on many, many levels. And we won't, we won't have time to get into it on this podcast, but we will in another one. And so when is it, when is it going to affect you? Because the, the reality is it very well could affect you at some point. I'm sure Harriet Beecher Stowe never thought that the issue of slavery was going to affect her life. And yet it did when it came to the just, you know, she could not morally justify sending a slave back once they had, once they had been on the side of freedom. And so with that, uh, we will wrap this podcast up. I hope you learned something from those three examples and I will, I'm happy to leave links for you on on the notes. I did finally open up a Facebook community page. That community page is titled, let me just check real quick. It's titled Letters from Harriet, a podcast on polygamy. And it's got the same picture as what this podcast does. So that's going to be the Facebook community page. For now, that's where we'll have you leave comments and questions if you like. So 